Frank Morano. Uh, it's always a real treat to be able to talk with Alan Tonelson. His blog, Reality Check, it not only covers economics, national security, technology, and more, but it's a blog that I steal. Anytime you hear me sounding rem- remotely coherent or that I might know what I'm talking about, that's because of a thought or some analysis that I've stolen from Alan Tonelson. So if you want to skip Having to listen to me and just go to the few lucid moments for each show that I have, just read Alan Tonelson's reality check blog regularly. He's also been a former advisor on trade issues to both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders when they were presidential candidates. He's an author. He's done a whole bunch of interesting things. Alan, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Well, Frank, thank you so much for that very generous introduction. And as usual, your musical selection is spot on. That's right. Are you a uh, are you a Jim Morrison fan? I was not an incredible Doors fan, but I certainly grew up during that period, and their music was a big part of my adolescence and college years. So right. I, I certainly, I, I, I certainly appreciated the role that the Doors played in the development of American rock and roll. Absolutely. So I have been following a great deal of uh, your writing on the Ukraine situation. It's caused me to uh, challenge a lot of the assumptions that we're getting from. Um, many in the mainstream media on Ukraine. Give me your analysis of where things stand now. It appears to be getting worse in terms of violence and in terms of death and in terms of people losing their homes by the day. And where do you think we go from here? What's the best case scenario? Frank, I have to tell you, I have not been as scared um, about the uh, possible outcomes of a global foreign policy crisis um, as I have with this Ukraine crisis since the since the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And I think that I'm even more scared because whereas 9-11 um, was the result of a so-called non-state actor, the terrorist group Al-Qaeda, which after all had, had, had fairly limited capacity when all was said and done to do damage to the United States, this Ukraine crisis involves a nuclear-armed superpower, Russia, that's got 6,000 warheads. And, my, my, and, and what I'm most worried about is the violence, the fighting spilling across Ukraine's borders onto the territories of new members of NATO. And of course, since they are new members of 
of NATO countries like countries like Poland and the Baltics have a, have a legally ironclad defense guarantee from the United States, which means that we could very easily be facing the prospect of U.S. troops and Russian troops squaring off, confronting each other directly, and of course that always raises that 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 inevitably raises the prospect of escalation to the nuclear weapons level. So where do we go from here? What is the best case scenario from the United States point of view and from Europe's point of view? The best case scenario from the American point of view uh, is really something that a lot of Americans understandably are not going to be happy to hear about because we have all, of course, been incredibly impressed and incredibly admiring of the the courage and skill that's been shown by Ukraine's military in fending off Russia's attack. But having said that, the best course, I think, for Ukraine and for the United States and also Europe is for President Biden to finally show some interest in pressing Ukraine to accept major compromises to end the fighting. Because ending the fighting is the paramount U.S. interest precisely because of its potential to spill across borders. Uh, That is precisely my view, but whenever I've mentioned it on the air or I've had other guests say something similar to what you just said, inevitably what I hear from folks is some version, and look, this is difficult logic to argue with, Mm. that that would be appeasement. That would be capitulation to an aggressive dictator that would be rewarding uh, Putin for his actions in invading his neighbor on a a Chamberlain-esque level. Why is that argument about appeasement not something that holds water with you? Why wouldn't this just encourage Putin to invade another country? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that that we're in a situation with this Ukraine conflict uh, where there are no good choices. There are no good choices morally, that's for sure. And there are very few good choices strategically. There are only bad and less bad choices. And what I'm trying to think of is the least bad choice for all parties concerned, but especially the, but especially the United States. And and there's no question that the course of action that I'm recommending would entail appeasement. Would it entail appeasement on a Chamberlain-esque level, as we saw back in 1938, when when Britain, led by former Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain in France, basically gave Hitler the Sudetenland? in Czechoslovakia and therefore whet his appetite for further conquest i don't think that's the that's the that's the scenario uh that's that's remotely likely to unfold at all precisely because russia's military has proven itself to be so incompetent and it is unimaginable to me that that a country that is having so much difficulty winning or, or even holding it, its own 
in Ukraine, which which it outnumbers population-wise, which it which which it outguns by every single measure of military might that you can think of. If Russia is having such difficulty quelling Ukraine, how on earth could anybody imagine that it's going to be in any kind of a shape to attack more countries once this conflict ends? If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Alan Tonelson. He is a, a trade expert and a blogger over at Reality Check. If you just type into Google Alan Tonelson and Reality Check, it comes right up. You can also go to Alan Tonelson, T-O-N-E-L-S-O-N, dot WordPress, uh, dot com. It's a little amazing to me. I don't want to color your answer, but it was a little bizarre to me, quite frankly, that this is the precise moment in world geopolitical history that we're now talking about adding even more countries to NATO, in this case, Sweden and Finland. Uh, what's your view, Alan, about the movement to expand NATO in general and to Sweden and Finland specifically? To be fair, we have to recognize that the, that the main impetus for Sweden and Finland joining NATO is not coming from Washington. That was the case when the alliance expanded back in the 1990s and early 2000s. I mean, clearly the former Soviet bloc countries wanted to join, but what was much more important was that Washington was really pushing this under Bill Clinton, under George W. Bush, and, and under under... Barack Obama. Um, today, we have the, the very interesting situation that Sweden, a long-time neutral country, of course, uh, in fact, we have to remember Sweden even stayed neutral during World War II, and Finland, which had been Finlandized, as the expression went, for decades, which meant that Finland actually accepted limits that were imposed by the Soviet Union on its foreign policy, and, and in particular on its ability to join military alliances that Moscow did not approve of. But both of those countries, it, it's, 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 it's incredibly understandable um, that they're looking at what Russia's doing in Ukraine, and they're listening to Putin's uh, to Putin's speeches and various writings about restoring Russia's you know place as a great power. Uh, his allusions to restoring the Russian Empire, and you can certainly see why they're very interested now in actually joining NATO. So again, I I I, I can't blame Washington for this. Um, I think in the long run, it would be a, a, a pretty serious mistake for these countries, but it's very difficult to criticize them too emphatically right now. In terms, one interesting thought that I had not seen, and it just struck me as interesting mm -hmm. because I haven't seen much in the way of unusual ideas over the last week, was from uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe in the uh, New York Times Op-ed section this weekend. <laughs> Boy, you could have knocked me over with uh, a feather with that one. I, I didn't say okay. it was an idea I was endorsing. Okay. I said it. it was different. That's uh, okay. Uh, but so he proposed this idea, and this might be the first time that some of the listeners are hearing about this. He proposed this idea to have the United States 
liquidate Russia's central bank assets that could be worth as much as $100 billion and are being held in the United States and then use that money to aid Ukraine in this war effort. What would the economic and the national security implications be of the United States basically trying to steal Russia's gold? I'm not certain how much that idea would really affect the situation on the ground in Ukraine, because as I understand it, the big obstacle to supplying Ukraine with all of the the weapons that it wants is not financial. It's clear that the United States in particular is willing to spend enormous amounts of money on arms for Ukraine. It's also very clear that the West European countries, um, although apparently not in quite so generous a mood, are also ready to uh, are also ready to step up to the table uh, to a very significant extent. The mere, the real problem is getting all this stuff logistically to the battlefield inside Ukraine. Um, um, what it's it's obvious, um, although although most of the details remain classified it's obvious that that the western supply effort is relying on relatively small trucks um that can travel in enormous convoys or else they would be very conspicuous targets for russian air power and also russian artillery so the the supply effort has been very impressive but there's only so much carrying capacity that it actually has and so again the problem is not financial there's no doubt that that steps like professor tribe has proposed would do further damage to the russian economy but at the same time you have to ask yourself how much more damage could it do because because the sanctions already are so extensive with the very conspicuous and vitally important exception of energy imports. Talking with Alan Tonelson, he's a blogger over at Reality Check. I saw last night that uh, the MSNBC pundit Malcolm Nance has now gone to Ukraine to fight the Russians. And uh, I've uh, my former congressman, who's also a former mm-hmm. Marine, uh, went there. Michael Grimm went there mm-hmm. ostensibly wow. as a Newsmax journalist. The next thing I see wow. on Twitter, he's patrolling with a machine gun. Wow. Uh, there was an article in uh, the New York Times and the L.A. Times about the U.S. military veterans that are answering Zelensky's call to fight the Russians. Do you think it's a good idea for Americans, whether they're cable news pundits or uh, military veterans that most folks haven't heard of, to be going to Ukraine to fight right now? What I worry about is that their presence creates a great potential for hostage-taking. And hostage-taking would put Washington and the whole nation in a very difficult situation. Um, It would certainly make it much more difficult to ratchet up pressure on Russia if he held American citizens, if uh, Putin basically were holding American citizens at his mercy. So I'm not sure that's a really fantastic idea. And also... The, uh, however, however courageous 
these these actions are. In terms of manpower, they can't possibly make a big difference um, because Russia, because the Russian military so outnumbers the Ukrainian military in terms of its actual personnel. What Ukraine needs most, and President Zelensky has made this quite clear, is it needs advanced weapon system. It doesn't really need manpower. So again, I think that these uh, these U.S. quasi mercenaries um, they they're not going to really help that much, and again, they could cause tremendous problems for the American government. Where are you on the question of providing more military aid to the Ukrainians? I I have real doubts about this precisely because the more aid that we supply, and this is a really tragic irony uh, that's been surrounding this war ever since it became clear that Ukraine, that its forces were much more capable than anyone supposed, not only Putin, nobody in Washington expected anything like this kind of resistance, but the longer this war lasts, the more strange, the more successful Ukraine's military is. Again, the greater the odds that the fighting crosses borders and in, and goes into NATO territory, which would inevitably bring the U.S. military to bear. And the last thing anybody should want is a U.S.-Russia military confrontation because of of the potential for escalation to the nuclear level. And in this vein, let me make one point. I am so sick and tired of politicians and pundits on uh, across the entire political spectrum whining about how President Biden's reluctance to even think about U.S. troops is letting Putin basically set the whole agenda, is, is, is essentially letting Putin intimidate us, letting Putin... Uh, uh, um, control events. Um, that's true, of course, but in my view, any U.S. policy that meaningfully increases the chances of nuclear war between these two superpowers, which means increasing the chances of a nuclear attack on U.S. soil, is completely unacceptable. That is the kind of risk that we should never be running on behalf of a country that, however courageous, however admirable, is of no meaningful strategic or economic importance to the United States. I'm talking with Alan Tonelson, knows a great deal about not only national security, but economics as well. We've been hearing for a while about inflation. In fact, a lot of people are saying all the inflation talk is leading to more inflation. And uh, there's a uh, there's a variety of factors. President Biden has been very consistent, especially over the course of the last month, that one of the key factors driving inflation, especially in the energy sector, is this war between Russia and 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 Ukraine. This is what President Biden said uh, a week or so ago in Iowa. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide in a half a world away. And then he's made that reference a number of times, not the genocide aspect, but the the uh, Putin being responsible for driving up gas prices and inflation in general. 
Uh, what is the you're always you're a pretty straight shooter, n- generally nonpartisan when it comes to analysis. What is your take on how accurate that is? Biden's claim that Putin is responsible for inflation. There is no question that the higher energy costs that are resulting from this Ukraine conflict and and in particular from the Western sanctions on Russia have been pushing up prices across the board. Um, energy is a major input, as economists like to say, uh, for almost every product and service that Americans consume. So if energy prices go up, the price of everything else is going to go up eventually soon as well. And so undoubtedly, the Ukraine war that Putin started deserves some blame for our current inflation and will keep deserving blame for inflation going forward until this conflict stops and until global oil trade uh, returns to some kind of at least a quasi-normal state. At the same time, there's also no doubt that we were having worrisome inflation long before Putin invaded Ukraine. Inflation did not start February 24th when Russian troops crossed that border. It was it was increasing at, at, at rather robust rates for months and months before that. And one big, big reason has to do with, with, with that enormous economic stimulus bill that, that President Biden proposed early last year and that Congress passed. It poured trillions of dollars into the American economy uh, that simply were not needed because the the because the pandemic emergency had clearly passed. Um, it sped up recovery. There's no doubt about that. But the cost of speeding up recovery, which was already proceeding at a very nice pace, in large part was this historic inflation um, that can be very destructive if, if it's not reined in soon. You wrote a little bit about uh, the IMF and uh, what they what they've had to say on the question of inflation. I, I, I that has been an aspect of this debate that's largely been absent from the discourse over inflation. People have focused on the supply chain crisis. People have focused on energy. People have focused on COVID. Uh, even a few people have mentioned that stimulus bill that you just alluded to. I've heard very few people discuss. Uh, Uh, the International Monetary Fund. Where does the IMF interact with inflation? Well, the IMF was basically complaining that too many world governments, including the U.S. government, uh, were thinking about responding to the problems caused by excessive reliance on countries like China and like Russia for critical goods and services, mainly goods, of course, Um, by bringing production back home, by relying more on on their own economy's capabilities to supply those needs than on imports, and they were saying, "Well, this is going to uh, this is going to to tremendously increase economic inefficiency globally, and it's going to." to reduce global economic output, including U.S. economic output, below levels that it would have reached had trade remained free. 
And um, the problem is um, that the fund, well, there were many basic problems with this report, but what the fund really missed were, were, were two vital considerations. One is that, the, is that these measures, these so-called reshoring measures to strengthen supply chain security are not only being taken for economic reasons, they're being taken for national security reasons, they're being taken for health security reasons, to make sure that when we get hit by the next pandemic, whenever that is, that we're not caught short on masks, on ventilators, etc., and on the building blocks of most pharmaceuticals, which, after all, largely come from China. And we certainly don't want to be at China's mercy in that kind of situation. The IMF also completely missed the fact that when it comes to to the structure of its economy and its capability for for not only much more self-sufficiency, but self-sufficiently, but excuse me, but self-sufficiency while maintaining all of and and enjoying all of the benefits of competition, including lower prices, the United States is in a class by itself. The United States literally is the world, practically speaking, when it comes to the structure of its economy. We've got raw materials. We've got manufacturing. We've got energy. We've got technology. We have high-tech services. The only thing we don't have is uh, tropical fruit. And frankly, and frankly, um, we have such an enormous economy that, as I wrote in an article back in 2019, if Washington became serious about enforcing antitrust laws and making sure that we had even more robust levels of competition within our own economy, we would be able to reap virtually all 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 of those benefits of competition lower costs higher quality more innovation without relying on foreign competition to do the job there would be enough competition here at home and most countries are not in that situation. Most countries are not as fortunate as this country is. We are that fortunate. We should seek to capitalize on that advantage, and that hasn't been nearly a high enough priority of U.S. economic policy going back decades now. Uh, We're talking with Alan Tonelson. His blog is Reality Check. Check it out online. During the Trump administration, you and I spoke frequently about tariffs. Uh, You, me, and the president were largely on the same page, the former president, uh, on that front, even though a lot of economists on the left, on the right, were warning about two things. They were warning about severe inflation, the kind of which we're seeing now, and they were warning that um, that retaliatory tariffs in other countries would hurt American exporters. I know the Biden administration has tried to roll back some of those Trump tariffs. Where are we right now with respect to the tariffs that were implemented during the Trump administration? And what was the economic impact? I know it's difficult to maybe answer this because everything got sort of upended with COVID. What were the economic impacts of those tariffs? Well, first of all, the status of the Biden rollback is actually quite encouraging for those of us who I call trade policy realists. 
in that the rollback has been very, very limited. Uh, we have to remember that even President Trump exempted uh, fairly significant numbers of of Chinese imports, in particular from those tariffs. Uh, so these exemptions, the so-called rollback, that's nothing new. I, I myself was quite worried that Biden, who had a long record before entering the White House, of essentially coddling China, of championing greater trade with China, greater investment with, with China, greater economic integration with China. I was really worried that 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 Biden would be smart would be smart enough politically to understand that 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 waging what you might call a frontal attack on the Trump tariffs would be incredibly unpopular. So I thought he would go about it through this this rather stealthy process of exemptions. But again, they've been very limited, and that's been very encouraging. What's also very encouraging is that in terms of its what you might call vision, President Biden has now has now adopted the exact same China policy vision as President Trump did, and that is it is completely pointless to try to to to, to try to 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 use diplomacy or even tariffs to reform China. That's not going to happen, but tariffs can be incredibly useful in shielding. U.S. producers from predatory Chinese trade practices. And President Biden's trade representative, Catherine Tai, made that very clear in, in testimony that she gave Congress at the end, at the end of last month. Now, um, we haven't yet seen full follow-through, but the rhetoric, very encouraging so far. I'm just about out of time, Alan, but final question I have to ask before we before I let you go. Even though you no longer live in the New York area, yeah. I know you're still a Yankee fan. I'm a long-suffering, lifelong <laughs> Met fan. Tell me, as a Yankee fan who watched Buck Showalter up close and personal for his entire tenure here, do you ever get over the fact that he never takes his jacket off? Why does he never take that jacket off? He's just a stickler for 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 professionalism and uh, and and protocol, and he's just an old-fashioned guy, and I really admire that. And frankly, there are have certainly been a lot of. of days this season when I wish Buck were managing the Yankees <laughs> rather than Aaron Boone. Uh, you know what? Uh, I uh, We could be doing a lot worse than Buck seems to be doing right now. Oh my goodness. You're having, you're having a real solid year so far. We're hitting 229. <laughs> so far so good on Jeez. both counts. Alan Tonelson, his blog is Reality Check. Check him out. Alan, let's talk again soon. I can't wait, Frank. Thank you so much.